This is the Bridge Church Podcast, an audio ministry of the Bridge Church, a Nazarene community in Oahu, Hawaii. Please visit us in person or check us out online at bridgenaz.org. We hope to hear from you. We hope to see you. God bless. Mahalo. So in just a few months, believe it or not, we'll be rounding the bend to Christmas. <laughs> and every Christmas, the famed Charles Dickens tale, uh, A Christmas Carol, uh, reemerges. It's a timeless tale that we all know, right? It's the story of this penny-pinching Ebenezer Scrooge who's visited by a ghost of his past. And this ghost takes him back in time and shows him his process, essentially, of becoming a despicable man, a Scrooge. In one scene, Ebenezer Scrooge speaks to the ghost and he says to him, remove me from this place. It's a get out of this place. And the ghost responds to Scrooge and he says, I told you, these were shadows of the things that have been. The things that have been, they are what they are. Don't blame me. So it's a powerful book and a movie on many levels and in many ways. And one of the many things that it has the potential to teach us is that sometimes when we reflect on the events of our pasts, our past lives, when we go rooting through our personal histories, we might just encounter some things that disturb us some images that disturb us. And I'll I'll bet that uh, each one of us can relate to that, can't we? If we were to go digging, what skeletons might we find in our closet? It's kind of a a scary prospect, yeah? Uh, If all of us were to go dig through our pasts, what regrets would just bubble to the surface? Or what if others were to go digging deep into your past? What regrets might float to the surface? Because the reality is is that most of us, we do carry around regret. Or we carry around some regrets. We have some ghosts lurking around back there. I was reminded uh, while reading this week of the opening of Khaled Hosseini's work, The Kite Runner. It's also a good book and a good movie, but here's how the book begins. It opens with this, the very opening paragraph. It says, I became what I am today at the age of 12 on a frigid overcast day in the winter of 1975. I remember the precise moment, crouching behind a crumbling mud wall, peeking into the alley near the frozen creek. That was a long time ago, but it's wrong what they say about the past. I've learned about how you can bury it <laughs> because the, the past actually claws its way out. And, and looking back now, I realize I've been peeking into that deserted alley for the last 26 years. One day last summer, my friend Rahim Khan called from Pakistan. He asked me to come see him and standing in the kitchen with the receiver to my ear, I knew it wasn't just Rahim Khan on the line. It was my past. 
of unatoned sins. Ring, <laughs> ring, you know that feeling, don't you? You can relate something or someone from your past, uh, something or someone unwanted intrusively re-enters your life. You haven't heard from the person or seen the person in years, and then all of a sudden, maybe a name and a number appears on your phone screen and your heart just sinks. Your stomach drops. Your throat gets full. You feel instantly like you could vomit. Your past has come back. It has caught up. It brings to mind the opening lyrics from the rapper Eminem song. Uh, he, he begins one of the songs as he says, palms are sweaty, knees weak, arms are heavy. There's vomit on his sweater already, mom's spaghetti. <laughs> it's a profound thought. Your unatoned sins creeping back up and calling you back up. In Hosseini's The Kite Runner, the character tells us right at the start that, in fact, something that happened 26 years ago has been in hot pursuit of him every day since. A memory of the event that shaped him as a youngster has never really let him go. I can relate so much to that. I think, the, I think Paul, the apostle, could relate so much to that. When speaking to the Christians in Corinth, uh, one way he dealt with it was to always be on guard. He was saying we should take every thought captive. That's what he was encouraging them to do. But it's often easier said than done, yeah? Uh, I, I mean, if you're anything at all like me, you can just have the craziest past thoughts just jump into your mind out of nowhere. They like hit you and leave you wondering like, where in the world did that come from? That wasn't even on my radar, hasn't been on my radar in years. We have this, this thought come up and we mull it over and we're thinking on it and then we let it go. But before we know it, it's, it's back again. You know what I'm talking about? It, it's kind of crazy how that happens. It's a ghost, it seems, of our past coming back to haunt us. Is it? I mean, is it a skeleton reawakening a memory in our closet? Whatever it is, there's no denying that it's something that's shaped us, even if, as in the case of Khaled Hosseini's character, it happened 26 years ago or beyond, right? Sometimes our past sins, or even just our past, comes calling us up. And so as we begin to embark on somewhat new territory in Genesis, leaving Abraham a little bit behind, as it were, along with Sarah and Ishmael and a host of other characters, Hagar, we'll find that we're not really leaving them behind in the past that far after all. For Isaac is very much like his dad. And Rebecca, who we're about to read about, is very much like Sarah. The past isn't too far behind or out of reach in Genesis, just like it isn't in our own lives. Isaac and Rebecca also share traits with the more distant ghosts of their past, not the least of which are Adam and Eve. Esau and Jacob, whom we'll meet today too, have affinities with Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. And part of my point is this, as we move forward in Genesis, we can rarely take a single step without the past trying to intrude, trying to call up these characters in the story and remind them, y'all, the apple didn't fall far from the tree. And so today, as we return to and finish out Genesis 25, 
I want to invite you to keep in mind that the past is never really that far behind. In fact, the opening line for Isaac's own story begins in just that way, with the shadow of the past hovering about shadows, as it were, of the things that have been. So we're going to turn to Genesis 25, and we're going to pick up at verse 19. And right now I'm going to go ahead and post the uh, slides up on the screen. And if you need to scan that to get to your Bible notes, go ahead and do that. I'll leave this up here for a moment, and then we'll move on to the next slide, Genesis 25, 19. Genesis 25, 19 says this. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham became the father of Isaac. All right, so at first glance, uh, it, this seems like a straightforward verse, but there are a few things worth noting. First, as I said, in Genesis, any time the narrative moves forward, the past is always nearby, right? Um, it's, it's actually often infused, and that's the case here. Isaac's story can't progress without Abraham in the mix. Second, in Hebrew, underlying this English, is this word toledot, which I've shared with you before, and it's this marker that keeps appearing throughout Genesis. Uh, it appears several times, and what it does is it helps mark new sections of the story in Genesis. It appears here. It's translated here as generations, and that's a fine and a good translation, but it also doesn't quite get the entire picture. Uh, uh, Toledot probably connotes not just um, a, a generation uh, just merely a generation, but how that new generation is carrying on the beliefs and carrying on the practices and the bloodline of the previous generation. It's carrying on the family name. It's carrying on the legacy and so on. And so there, there's something else to notice here too. The second sentence basically repeats the first. Isaac was the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father to his son Isaac. Those basically mean the same exact thing. Well, why do we have this repetition? Well, some believe this may have been there to make the point that indeed Isaac was from Abraham and not another man, like say King Abimelech, who had called Sarah into his quarters in the past. It could just be there for emphasis, but it may reinforce the point that I, I just made about Abraham really imbuing Isaac with his own past. Here's how one scholar translated this verse. Uh, he translated Toledot as hereditary characteristics. And it goes like this. As for these hereditary characteristics of Isaac, son of Abraham, Abraham infused them into or within Isaac. In other words, what we're about to read of Isaac, it's all really just a continuation of Abraham. And while we may once again rush to see that in a positive light, maybe we should slow down and remind ourselves, Abraham had some issues. And if you and I, we take a good look at ourselves, right, an honest look, the same, it's true of us. The issues that many deal with uh, into adulthood or in adulthood stem directly from what their parents infused into them. Anger issues, envy issues, issues of desertion, 
codependency, drinking, smoking, overeating, overspending, addictions, and so on. We all know that uh, what's infused into us, often or usually by no choice of our own, can often be limiting and debilitating and something that we spend a lifetime fighting to overcome. And so let's not sugarcoat this. Let's take it for what it is. Let's take the good with the bad. Remember, Genesis has a generational outlook. And frankly, it's pretty messy. There's good to be sure, but there's also bad. There's also rough edges. And if we look back at our own personal stories, the same is true of us. So from the jump, the story about Isaac is making it clear that this is a continuation from his parents and what's been infused into him from previous generations. And I'm sure y'all, if you're honest with yourselves, you can relate to that. Let's look at the next slide. It says this. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Paran Aram, the sister of Laban, the Syrian to be his wife. That seems like a really boring and irrelevant verse but it's not. This is very, very, very important. We got to read close here. Here's what I want to suggest to you. To make sense of the rest of what we're about to cover today, um, one could resort to numerous explanations. I've poured over this and over this and over this. And to me, there's one detail that when we take it very, very seriously, it makes sense of the entire story. And it's this. Isaac, at this point in his life, is broke. Perhaps a famine has hit again. Perhaps he went wild and spent whatever inheritance money or inheritance he'd received from his father. Perhaps all of his cattle died. I don't know the details about how he went broke, but it's the one thing that makes sense of the rest of the scene and it makes everything else in the story fall into place. Uh, Isaac is 40 and he's broke. He's in the midst of a pre-life crisis, as it were. He dies at 180, Isaac does. Uh, but already here, he's struggling. And later, we'll read that his eyesight is starting to fail. He's hungry. Isaac is unraveling. One, one thinker has described a midlife unraveling, not a midlife crisis, but they refer to it as a midlife unraveling this way. It's a series of painful nudges strung together by low-grade anxiety and depression, quiet desperation, and an insidious loss of control. By low-grade, quiet, and insidious, I mean it's enough to make you crazy, but seldom enough for people on the outside to validate your struggle or offer you help and respite. It's the dangerous kind of suffering the kind that allows you to pretend that everything is okay. Does that hit home for anyone? I mean, I've been there. Have you been there? Uh, in that state of low-grade anxiety and depression? You feel stuck in quiet desperation, feel like you've lost control, feel like you could go crazy at any moment and others are looking at you like, dude, get over it. You've, you've got it made. Get over it. And they're not validating the struggle that you're going through. Let me suggest something. When, when people come to you with something and they're being honest, 
and they're being raw and they're being real and they're being transparent, hear them out. Let them share. Don't, don't start trying to remind them of how good they have it. Don't make them feel like, oh, you just, you got, you, you've given up on God. You just need to trust God. Or don't make people feel like their faith is weak. Just sit with them in it. Let it be. Resist the urge to fix. Resist the urge to make them think or pretend that in front of you, they have to act like everything's okay because they know what's coming. You're just going to tell them in a very nice way to get over it and to trust God. Instead, simply sit with them. Validate that struggle, right? I, I know you're struggling. I'm here for you. I've got you. I'll listen. Right? I think Isaac is struggling in this story. And as I continue on with it today, you'll see why. But let me make another really, really important point here. You recall the story from before, uh, before we went into that month-long study on Jonah, the story about Abraham sending his servant to get Rebekah for Isaac. You remember that. And you'll recall, too, that Isaac never asked Abraham to do that. But most importantly, you'll recall that the servant deceived Rebekah and her family the entire time. And what we're going to see over the next few weeks as we get into the Isaac and Rebekah story is how that affects their entire marriage. Rebecca, who thought she was she was traveling with Abraham's servant, but she thought she was traveling with her husband. She thought that was her husband the entire time. She was dropped off at the end and given to Isaac. No, this is your husband. She was deceived. And as soon as they rode up on camels, uh, she was dropped off with Isaac. This deceitful servant left her. This guy she thought was her husband. And now... She's deceived, far from her homeland, stuck with a man, a husband-to-be that she didn't necessarily want. She left her homeland for a better life and received an unexpected surprise. So she was deceived, and she was stuck with this man, Isaac. Essentially, she was trafficked, if we're using today's language. Can you imagine what sort of feelings Rebecca felt? Probably she felt powerless, like many trafficked women do, silenced, like a pawn in these men's games, homesick. And here's what I want to suggest to you. The past never leaves her. It sits and sits. It lurks in her background like the ghost of Christmas past. It's a skeleton in her closet. It's always close by, and it's much of what sets the stage for her to take revenge in this marriage, and she will take revenge in this marriage. Here's the other thing. She was no stranger to revenge. Even that's clear in all these names that we just read. Let me put them back on the screen again. These names are very, very meaningful. Rebecca, the daughter of Bethuel the Aramean, of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban the Aramean to be his wife. Notice the words Aramean, Aram, and again Aramean. In Hebrew, these place names are really functioning like a play on words because the Hebrew word Ramai means to deceive or to trick. And Aram, Ramai, 
sounds very, very similar. As one scholar put it, the term Ramai in Aram and Araman in this verse becomes a reality in future events. This echo will eventually define a pattern of behavior in the culture of Aram that will affect the entire family in Canaan. Or to put it differently, the trickery and deceit that Rebecca grew up with in her household eventually arises within her as she's within Canaan and it takes its place in her own household and her own family. Now, in fact, we might have another reason for the double mention of Abraham in the previous verse to contrast Abraham with Bethuel. Or as one person has asked, which set of ethical practices will the family to be? Isaac and Rebecca's family, which practices will the family to be be raised by? Which practices will Isaac and Rebecca choose to follow in their household? Those of grandfather Abraham or those of grandfather Bethuel and uncle Laban of Aram? Or put differently, Isaac and Rebecca, are you going to let the kids be like grandpa Abe or grandpa Bethuel and uncle Laban? Yeah, Abraham wasn't great, but the text is certainly trying to place him above Bethuel. And in a way, we can ask that question of ourselves, can't we? Parents, are you going to raise your kids according to the way of God or the way of deceit, the way of the world, right? Will you infuse a deep and abiding faith into their lives so that it's a vibrant faith? Or will you play it safe? Will you let them choose and just see what happens? For those who've already raised children... Perhaps this is a reflecting point for you. For those who haven't or maybe won't or, or choose not to, then the, the, the question asked of you is, which family line and values are you living out? Mm. Mm. Let's look at the next few verses. They say this, the text continues, Isaac prayed to Adonai for his wife because she was barren. And Adonai was prayed to by him. Another repetition by there. And Rebecca, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her. And she said, if it's like this, why me? So she went to inquire of, Ad of Adonai. And Adonai said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples will be separated from your body. The one people will be stronger than the other people. The elder will serve the younger. Yeah, like most of the matriarchs in Genesis, Rebecca is barren and she requires a miracle. And so Isaac goes to his God and he prays. And again, the text mentions that twice. It's a point of emphasis. She conceives. And immediately we read of this war that begins in her. The children are fighting in the womb, jockeying for position, it seems. And she does something dangerous. She asks, why? Ugh. I know there's a popular book. It's titled Start With Why. But as I've said before, we need to do the exact opposite. Stop with why. This is a never-ending question. Find a better, more pointed, and, and creative question to ask. Rebecca simply drives herself into a state of torture here by asking why. Yet something interesting happens. After Isaac prays, she does too. And he tells her 
that these two kids are representative of nations at war. And then he says, one will be stronger than the other. And wait for it. The youngest will be boss. This is another common theme we see in Genesis. This law of primogeniture, which we mentioned several weeks ago, was a law that said the eldest receives the birthright, the double portion, and the family responsibility. That family responsibility always fell to the eldest. Now here, that's flipped. And who's the only person on the planet at this time that knows about that? Rebecca. Now, I know parents aren't supposed to play favorites, but just imagine if God tells you you're having twins and that the youngest one will be best, the winner, don't you think there's potential for a little bit of partiality? I think so. Because, because of that, I, I think this absolutely affects her. I think she, I think it sets the stage for her to play favorites a bit. And that's going to cause some problems. The text continues. Let me put it back up on the screen here, saying this. Oops. Oh, come on. When her days to be delivered were fulfilled, sure enough, there were twins in the womb. The first came out red all over like a hairy garment, and they called him Esau. After that, his brother came out, and his hand was holding Esau's heel. He called him Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. What an intriguing description here. What's going on here? Well, if we read closely, it's what I was saying before. The creeping in of the past is the description. It's meant to send us back to the first several chapters of Genesis, to Adam and Eve, to Cain and Abel. The name Adam is related to the word red here. It's the same exact root in Hebrew. And what happens just before, what happens just before the Eden expulsion? God gives Adam and Eve animal garments. And Esau here is described in just that way, hairy. It's essentially what Esau means. It's what the word itself means, hairy. I mean, a hairy baby? It's a little creepy, isn't it? Most babies aren't really cute right out of the gate anyway, but a baby with Body hair? Uh, lots of hair? It's kind of odd. Um, but th this is like a hyperlink just back to the, the beginning part of the story. And there's tons of hyperlinks. Tons of hyperlinks. If you, uh, An important one is the comment about Jacob coming out of the womb second, holding Esau's heel. You remember where we heard about heel earlier in Genesis? It's right here in Genesis 3.15. God tells the serpent after Eve's deception, he says, serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Her seed shall bruise your head, he's talking to Satan, and you, Satan, shall bruise his heel. The picture there is of Eve's children, Eve's offspring, stepping on the head of a serpent, and as they do, the serpent biting and grabbing onto the heel. Pay attention here. Pay very, very close attention. As God spoke these words to the serpent, the evil one, the ultimate deceiver and trickster. And God also spoke to Rebekah that Jacob would be the prominent one of her seed. There's a sense in the story then that if Jacob is going to carry on God's chosen line, then Satan would want that to end. He would want nothing to do with Jacob. He'd want Jacob to be ended. 
He went off Jacob. And so before Jacob can emerge from the womb and strike Satan's head as Eve's offspring, Satan wants to strike first. And he does so perhaps via Esau. That raises all sorts of questions about what can happen to babies in the womb spiritually, but I don't want to get sidetracked by that here. The point is this, that Satan wants to strike first on Jacob's head, the head of Abraham's line, before Jacob can exit the womb and step on his head. And so what does Jacob do? He grabs Esau's heel. He's trying to stop him, to block him. And they emerge in that fashion with him holding on to his Many read this story as if Jacob is jealous of Esau and he's grabbing uh, Esau's foot in order to not let him be born first. That, that may be right, but I'm not so sure about that. It seems more in line with the overall story to suggest that he's actually protecting himself. And by way of that, Abraham's lying. And it sets a major precedent. It's a foreshadowing in the womb that Esau will not have regard for Abraham's line. Even though he's the firstborn, the eldest. He doesn't care about the birthright. And we'll see that in just a moment. Uh, let's keep reading because it continues. Check this out. Check this out. The boys grew. Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. Jacob was a quiet man living in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate his venison. Rebekah loved Jacob. Oh, did you catch that about Esau? Not just that he's a skillful hunter, but a man of the field. That's important, a man of the field. Do you remember how the serpent was described in Genesis 3.1? It says the serpent was the most cunning of all the beasts in the field. Same exact words there in the field. Esau and the serpent are both of the field. Later, Cain and Abel are both of the field. Cain, a farmer, Abel, a shepherd. And as you know, Cain killed Abel. So I could draw all these connections, but I hope you're connecting some dots here, particularly with regard to how the past, right? It's it's often interjecting itself into the present and it shapes the present story. It was Jacob and Esau, they'll both have ghosts of their past come to haunt them. But Esau in particular is connected to that past ghost, the serpent. Again, there's this generational infusion going on here. And in some ways it can't be helped. People are born into certain families. People are born into certain problems by no choice of their own. Genesis really wrestles with that because honestly, it doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem just that some people get great parents in this life, that some people have a great childhood and they have fond memories while others suffer as children and struggle as children and always are, are fighting to overcome. Maybe for them, they had no parents or one parent or not a great childhood or no great and fond memories. And say what you will, but such things leave their marks. They affect each and every one of us, sometimes in ways we'd rather not own up to, admit, or share. I was reading this this week, for instance, about a man named David Paw Hammer. I wonder if any of you are familiar with him. He was born in 1958. He wrote several books. He was widely known. The titles of his books, 
They're things like deadly secrets, secrets worth dying for, the final escape. He wrote all those books from prison. In the early years of his life, he grew up just dirt poor. He lived in the car with his family for a while. He, he slept in the trunk as a kid. He was repeatedly abused in multiple ways, probably all the ways you can think of by both parents. And at 19, David Paul Hammer entered prison. And into his 50s, that's where he spent the rest of his life, many of those years on death row. In reading about Hammer's disturbing life, there's one scene, oh, it just, it, it hits like a ton of bricks. It involves his mother, whom he said he wanted to be buried by, despite her endless cruelty to him as a child. And it reminds me that in this life, there is no escaping some of the things infused to us by a previous generation or by previous generations. Some things are ingrained, as it were, ghosts that'll never leave. This scene, I'm about to share the story, it's, it's graphic, it's a little disturbing. When, when David Paul Hammer was seven, a family member and uncle gave him and his siblings each puppies. And about a week later, one of his brother's dogs was hit by a car and his mom just exploded in a rage. She blamed it on little David. And as he recalls, to quote, teach him a lesson, she made this young seven-year-old David go to scoop the dog's body up off the road and put it in a little knapsack. And as he was doing that, she was smacking and, and punching, beating young David, screaming at him, cursing at him. And she made little seven-year-old David get his dog, and who was still alive, and his brother's living dog, and put them in a different knapsack. And right there in front of him and in front of the brothers, to teach him a lesson, she started beating the bags with a shovel. And he tried to stop her. And as he went over, she slapped him. She kicked him. And he could hear for a moment the dog squealing and crying in the bag. And then the blood started oozing out through the bag. And when she had finished, as if that wasn't torturous enough, she had him pick up the dogs in the bags and walk with her to the nearby pond and drop them in. And when he did, she turned to him and laughed, laughed in his face evil laugh it must have been and she told him you better never tell anyone and so it's no surprise that this young boy raised in this demented context was fit for a life of crime at age 19 he went to a local hospital to get help and it turned into him taking people hostage within the hospital. And later he would enter prison and escape and re-enter and eventually kill his cellmate, which is what put him on death row. And on June 7, 2019, he was executed in Terre Haute by death penalty. There's nothing in this world that could convince me that the way Hammer was raised, his context, his environment, his family's dysfunction, and his parents' actions didn't shape him couldn't convince me that they didn't shape him. It's not to say things are predetermined. Some people do break the mold, break out of dysfunction. Some don't, but that stuff lingers. It affects us. And we, and we don't think Rebecca's family of deceivers affected her. 
We're kidding ourselves if we don't. If we don't think Rebecca being deceived by Abraham's servant and essentially trafficked by her affected her. We're kidding ourselves. If we don't think that the sins of our predecessors, uh, even back to Adam and Eve, have affected us, we're just kidding ourselves. This stuff runs deep. If we don't think Isaac loving Esau affected Esau and Jacob, we're kidding ourselves. If we don't think that Rebecca loving Jacob affected Jacob and Esau, we're kidding ourselves. If we don't think Abraham taking Isaac up on a mountain and getting ready to kill him affected him, we're kidding ourselves. Certainly, that affected what kind of dad Isaac was going to be, right? If we don't think their being broke at this point in the story, at this stage of life, affected them as a family, we're kidding ourselves. If they were poor and they had little food, famines were common, right? Then it's no wonder why Isaac loves Esau, because he gets them food to eat. What's infused from one generation to another matters. It affects so much. And I was asking at the start, what if your past sins called you up? How would you react? Atone? Would you try to make things right? Hmm. The next bit of verses say this. Jacob boiled stew. And Esau came in from the field and he was starving. And Esau said to Jacob, please feed me with some of that red, red stew for I'm starving. Therefore, his name was called Edom, which again sounds like Adam or Adam. Same related Hebrew word. Jacob said, sell me right now your birthright. So just a few quick words here. First, note that the text doesn't say, although it may be implied, that Esau was hunting in the field. You see that. Perhaps he was just messing around in the field, walking in the field. We don't know. Perhaps that's why he was hungry, because he should have been out hunting, but he chose not to. We don't know. Maybe he was hunting, and he had an off day. Maybe he sat out there all day, waiting, and he was just exhausted. But he comes in, and there's that word again, red. The red man wants some red, red stew. It's kind of like saying the Adam-like man wants some Adam-like, Adam-like stuff to eat. Hmm. So he's called Adam. It sounds just like Adam, means red. And Jacob, his name means something different. His name means either like supplanter or we might say the takeover guy. He's in the house already cooking. Somehow he's got food. And Esau, in this moment of hunger or jealousy or both, he asks for the food that Jacob's got. And Jacob, without blinking, he strikes a deal. He says, right now, I'll give you this red stew for your birthright. It's a shocking scene. Seems a little bit like price gouging. Seems a little unexpected, but it adds this sudden twist to everything. And the story continues this way. Look at what it says. Esau said, here I am about to die. Die of starvation, right? So what's a birthright to me if I'm about to die of starvation? And Jacob said, well, swear to me right now. And he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. He ate and drank and rose up and went. And so Esau despised his birthright. And so there you have it. Esau gives his birthright for a bowl of red stew. It's sad, really. 
Yeah. How many times have we seen such a thing? Someone with the inability to see a little bit ahead and in the moment just throws it all away. That brings us to our bottom line for this week. Don't trade future possibilities for present desires. You know, as I was preparing this week, another name came rushing back to mind from my past. His name was, the name is Jonathan Bud Mackey. Anyone know him? <laughs> Probably not besides Christy. Uh, I met Jonathan, or we used to call him Bud, when he was an eighth grader in Kentucky. Several times I was a substitute teacher. Uh, then I had him in high school as a substitute teacher in ninth grade. He was this phenom on the basketball court. And in middle school, colleges were already scouting him as an eighth grader. And by uh, 10th grade, he'd accepted a, a full ride offer um, to play basketball at the University of Indiana. And I watched him in high school as a junior win a state championship, maybe the best high school basketball player I've ever seen. In his last year of high school, he chose to trade his future for present desires. He brought drugs to school, and that began his entry into the criminal justice system. He did 10 of his 15 and a half year sentence and then was released on parole. I searched his name up online this week as, as it rushed back to my mind just to see where things had gone for him. And sadly, I read that back in January of this year, he was caught transporting nearly $500,000 worth of drugs. And as far as I know, he's still awaiting a sentence. He's sitting behind bars and will be for a long time. He traded his future for present desires. Don't throw your future out the window because you're being someone that you really shouldn't be. In a very real way that's what sin at its base is it's trading away our future for present moment gratification it's like defenestration that's our word of the week this week defenestration it's a fun word uh defenestration is the act of throwing something out the window can you believe we have a word for that in english the act of throwing something out the window. In this story, Esau trades away his future, and in the end, like a crying Bud Mackey when I watched him sitting shackled for an interview with the news, he just wishes here, I think, well, wishes later, that it all had just gone differently. But you have Jacob, who through all this is actually doing what Esau should have been doing. He's caring for the family. That was the duty of the firstborn. And as we see here, Esau, he shrugs it off. It's nothing to him. He's essentially saying, I don't want the responsibility of that. In fact, he despises that responsibility, the text says. But later in life, as we get further in this story, you'll see he regrets it. He regrets who it turned him into. And I imagine there was a lot of rumination going on, right? Past thoughts flooding back. Torturous. It's torture to, to not be able to get past your past brokenness, isn't it? Do you know there's a logic to it all? There really is. Some researchers describe things this way. In life, there's an event that happens. There's some circumstance, maybe a set of events. And those events, they trigger our emotions and we, we begin to feel a certain way. And when we feel a certain way and we sit in that for a while, it becomes a mood. My family knows sometimes I just say, don't mess with me right now. I'm in a bad mood. Well, well, how did I get to that mood? Well, there was an event. It triggered emotions and I just sat in those emotions and it turned into a mood. Well, if you choose uh, not to just sit in your emotions, but dwell in them, 
like live in them, they become a fixed temperament, right? And maybe we always stay grouchy or maybe we always get angry or get depressed and we stay that way or happy or sad or whatever. And after a while, after you live into that, it becomes who you are. And that's what we call a personality. And so here's the thing. If you don't like your personality or an aspect of it, a very healthy way to deal with it, with God's help, is to work back through to the event and the figure, and, and then to figure out how to deal with that in a good and meaningful way. Otherwise, do you know what happens? You stay that way and it becomes your personality. You stay that way. And frankly, that's no way to live. We should all be works in progress. And although we're, we're shaped by our past, we're not determined by it in Christ. We're not bound by it. From a Christian standpoint, we have the spirit of Christ living in us to help us overcome. The spirit of Christ to help us not sell our future or sell our future for the present. To not sell our, our, our future for present momentary gratification. The spirit of Christ can help us in the midst of our brokenness to change. So I'm going to close with this. Um, this is the story of a, a Christian minister, um, and he was traveling to a city in Europe. And on the train there, he had missed a stop where he was supposed to exit, and so he had to ride to the next stop and stay there overnight. And at dinner time, he went to this fancy little restaurant for a meal. And uh, as he was sitting there in uh, the restaurant, uh, he's he's eating. And he looks up and there's someone over at the door having a hard time getting through the door, starting to cause all this commotion. And so the mater d goes over, opens the door and helps. It was this young man in a wheelchair. He was in, in pretty bad shape and he was pushing the wheelchair or, or sorry, pushing the wheelchair was a young woman and she wasn't in much better shape. She was in rough shape too. Um, it was this, this big scene. And everyone, they're eating dinner, trying not to look, but kind of looking. And what happened next was really, really surprising. The mater d brought that couple to the table, right in the very center of the restaurant. And he sat them down. And both of them, the guy in the wheelchair and the woman who was pushing, they were just beaming. Soon, uh, the drinks came out and the food came out and both of them struggled to do either, right? To eat or drink. They were actually spilled their drinks. They were spilling their food off their plates. They didn't have the, uh, the dexterity, the physical ability to handle the cups or the utensils, but nonetheless, they were just smiling and they were radiating joy. And as that went on, Almost everybody started to just intently watch them and they started smiling. And this minister, he called the mater d' over to the table and he asked what, he said, what's going on? What, what's happening here? And the mater d' said, well, sir, this young couple, they're on their honeymoon. And in that moment, this, this minister was very moved because he knew that, look, in their minds, to themselves, throughout their lives, neither had probably thought that they were lovable, that someone could love them. And then, then this other person comes into my life 
And I never see my brokenness again. I only see the love that they have for me in their eyes. This love that draws me out of myself and this love that draws me beyond my own brokenness that I was dwelling on before and couldn't get past or get over. And this, this is very much like what it's like to encounter Jesus. Because regardless of our past ghosts, our family history, or our brokenness, when Jesus is before us, we no longer see that brokenness, but only the love that he has in his eyes for us. And so let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, here and now, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus' eyes. Look into his eyes and be utterly changed. Amen? Amen. Well, let me bless you. Now, may the Lord bless you and keep you as you turn your eyes to Jesus and focus on him. Amen, brothers and sisters. Go in peace.